So we're in Hebrews tonight, chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 4 through 14. We're going to finish chapter 1. As we're going to see, the writer's focus is on Jesus specifically, but he's going to be, continue that contrast. And so he's going to show us that Jesus is greater than the angels as we work through this passage. Let's pray and let's uh, see what the Lord will have for us. Father, I'm reminded of that passage in the Gospel of John where the Greek men came and they said, Sir, we, we asked to see Jesus. And Lord, that's one of the greatest lines in Scripture, Lord, because it really should be the prayer of all of our hearts every time we come to your word, every time we wake up. Lord, we pray that we can just see Jesus and that, Lord, that the world around us would fade away. Lord, that our circumstance or situation around us, Lord, would fade away. Lord, and in a sense, Lord, while we're sitting as a group here in this as a church, Lord, that it would be like we're sitting with you one-on-one and you explaining about yourself to us, Lord, and, and Lord, that your spirit would woo our hearts and that we would just be excited, Lord, just about our king and, and about, Lord, the future and, and the work, Lord, that you're going to do, and, the, and Lord, and also about the work that you have done for us through your, our redemption. In Jesus' name, amen. So if the writer of Hebrews put this passage in an email, specifically in a military email, he would have used the header BLUF. BLUF is an acronym for bottom line up front, and that's frequently used in an informal military correspondence or internal or um, you know, corporate emails to cover the main point of the email. And so in other words, you send that out and you're saying, hey, before you read this long email, bottom line up front, this is what it is. And that's what he starts here in verse 4. He starts with the premise. He says, bottom line up front, Jesus is the Son of God and he's become better than the angels. And so he says, hey, here it is. I'm not going to beat around the bush. Jesus is greater than the angels. And then in verses 5 through 14, he goes on to cite seven passages from the Old Testament to prove that premise, to prove that Jesus is greater than the angels. We've been talking about the context of this book because it's important to understand why he wrote it. And the context is that there were Hebrew Christians that were under persecution by their Jewish relatives who were still practicing Judaism. It was around the year 64 AD and the Jewish revolts were beginning. There was, there was small revolts against Rome. Of course, the Christians were hated by Rome, but yet they were hated by their own Jewish ancestors. And so the teaching began saying, hey, you know what, guys? We can stop our persecution by just setting aside our Christian faith and going back to Judaism. And just practicing Judaism, and then at least our family members will love us. At least it will take some of the pressure off us. Well, the writer got word of this and wrote to these Hebrew Christians and said, hey, guys, there is no retreat. There is no turning back. We're on a one-way road looking forward to Jesus, who's our one way, the only way, the truth, and the life. And then he shows how Jesus is greater than anything Judaism could offer. Christianity is the fulfillment to that. Last week, we saw that Jesus is greater than the prophets. Now, beginning this week, we see that Jesus is greater than the angels. Angels are very important in Jewish theology. But as we're going to see, Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. They are his servants. So let's begin in verse 4 and see the premise that he presents here. Having become so much better than the angels, as he, that's Jesus, has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So now the question arises, 
right? It's obvious that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. We saw that last week. Last week we saw seven doctrinal truths to show that Jesus is God. So notice the, the seven is, is a theme here in this book. Seven truths that we looked at one by one. Now we're going to see seven quotes of scripture one by one tonight. So the writer's writing in kind of a logical way. So we saw clearly that Jesus is God. Now the question is, why does the writer now say that Jesus has become greater than the angels? If he's God, obviously he's already greater than the angels. But we need to think about the problem that these Hebrew Christians were having. And the problem is given to us in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, and also verse 9. You can flip over real fast to chapter 2. And here's what he says concerning Jesus, the son of man or the son of David. In verse 6 of chapter 2, it says, But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You made him a little lower than the angels. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everybody. And so the writer of the Psalms here says, Hey, mankind is lower than the angels. Right, the angels are spirit beings. They, you know, they, they minister to God. Those good angels are sealed in righteousness. Right, They're not going to turn from God. And they serve God day and night, worshiping constantly before God's throne. Well, if you compare man to an angel, angels are, are exalted. Well, if that's the case, then the question was, well, what about Jesus? Didn't God become a man? And here it says he was made lower than the angels. So when Jesus, when God became man, he took up a human body. And he came and lived this, this, uh, this life so he can suffer for us. He took up a body for the purpose of the suffering of death so that he can be crowned with glory. And so the question is, if Jesus became man and he died on the cross and he ascended into heaven and he, and he continues to be the God-man... Does that mean angels are better than Jesus? Are they greater than Jesus? And the answer is no. The writer says that God has given him an inheritance that is above everything. He's given him a name that's above every name. Listen to what Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11 says. This is talking about Jesus becoming a man. It says, Who being in the form of God, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But he, but he made himself of no reputation, taking up the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, yeah, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, did become a man. And he did die on the cross. He lived a life as a humble servant. But yet, through his death and his resurrection and his ascension, the Bible says that God has highly exalted him. He's given him this inheritance. He's given him a name that is above every name. And that is the name Jesus. And that the name Jesus, every knee shall bow. Whether they're an angelic being, or whether they're a, a person on this earth, or whether they're a person under the earth in hell. Every knee shall bow to Jesus. It's been said by C.S. Lewis that there's two types of people. Those who bow the knee and say, thy will be done to God. And those in the end who have to bow the knee and God says, well, your will be done. 
God will force nobody to go to heaven, but every knee will bow before Jesus. And so Jesus is greater than the angels, right? Yeah, he is the God-man, but he, is, he has received that inheritance that is above every name. The writer goes on, verses 5 through 14, to show us these Old Testament scriptures. He says, I'm not just going to give you these truths. I'm going to prove it from the Bible. And I like that. If you can't prove what you believe from the Bible, well, then I don't want to hear it. Right? People talk about all these theories and stuff like that. Well, that's fine. Go for it. But if you can't prove it from the Bible, then I'm not going to hold to it. And that's why we like to teach the Bible verse by verse. And so the writer here says, hey, let's talk, let's talk the Bible right now. Let's, let's pull some scriptures out to show you that Jesus you know, is God. He's greater than the angels. Beginning in verse 5, he says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So the first passage that he points to is Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And the focus of this psalm is to show that God is on the throne. And, you know, it says that the nations were raging, the people were plotting a vain thing. But yet the Lord, the Bible says, sits in heaven, he laughs at the schemes of man. And then he shows that he's still on the throne. He says, I have, but I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And then he has declared the decree. And then he goes on and says that the Lord has said to me, today I have begotten you. And so God is on the throne. He's working out his will. Right? While the world is going crazy around us, God, through his providence, is still going to work out his prophetic plan. Jesus Christ will come back and establish God's kingdom on this earth. And Jesus has the right to rule this earth. Why? Because he's the only begotten son of God. And that psalm gives us the promise that Jesus is the rightful king and that he's waiting for the time in which the Father will establish him in his kingdom. So this is the context. And so when the term begotten is used, it's not referring to when Jesus was created. And that's often what people do. They say, well, the term begotten, it's talking about when he was born as a baby. But in the context of the psalm, it can't be that. Because it says, in this day I have begotten you. Well, he's already talking about this king who's going to rule. Right? Who's waiting for this kingdom. Now, the, the context of that psalm can't support that. The term begotten is in, is in reference to the time in which Jesus would, be, would have the kingdom bestowed on him. So while Jesus has always been the rightful king, right, he, the, the time for him to come and, and actually be the king could not happen until after he died on the cross, rose again from the dead, and ascended to heaven. And so, you know, just like a, a child in, in ancient times would, would, would be the rightful king of a throne, but until they came of age... Like say in the Jewish culture it was the bar mitzvah or in the Roman culture it was to be adopted as a son. And this is the same sense that the writer is talking about here. Jesus has always been the rightful king but his right to rule wouldn't come until he had died on the cross and rose again from the dead. I say that because this is what the apostle Paul says to his Jewish audience in Acts chapter 13. This is what Paul said in Acts 13, 29-33. Paul says, Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree, that's the cross, and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
And so this, in context, is referring to the resurrection of Jesus. And through the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, Jesus now has the right to come back and reign as king. And so this is what this writer is talking about here. He's saying none of the angels ever had this promise to them. None of them were ever said to be the begotten Son of God, but only Jesus who died and rose again from the dead. He goes on in verse 5 and says, And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. The second passage is a quote from 2 Samuel um, 7.14. And this again talks about Jesus' right to rule. And so David wanted to build God a, a temple. And God came to David and said, David, you can't do it because you have blood on your hands. And he says, but while I'm not going to establish, you know, you, you know, having a temple through you, I will give you this. I'm going to give you an eternal son, an eternal kingdom. And in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 14, Nathan said this to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you shall rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And so when Nathan was talking to David, David understood exactly what he was saying. He was looking past Solomon. He was looking to the king, the eternal king who would be born. And only Jesus can fulfill that role. Because only Jesus is the eternal king. And Jesus will come back again and rule upon the throne of David. He'll come back and establish God's kingdom on this earth and so the title son and these promises were only given to Jesus and not the angels and that's, you know, that's what you're trying to say here hey, none of the angels ever got this promise to rule as king none of the angels were ever called God's son and are, you know, are the begotten son of God yes angels in the bible are called sons of God you see that in the book of Job where it said that the sons of God came before the Lord and collectively, angels are called sons of God with a small s. But no angel is ever called the son of God or, you know, the begotten son of God. Only Jesus. Verse 6. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And so the Bible teaches that there's going to be two comings of the Messiah. The first coming was, as we all know, when Jesus was born into this world through the virgin birth, Right? God took up a human body through the Virgin Mary. He came to this earth to offer the kingdom to Israel, and they rejected it. But he also fulfilled that purpose and plan that God had, had foretold, that he would go to the cross and suffer for our sins as a, as a Lamb of God, rise again, and ascend into heaven. Well, there's going to be a second coming of Jesus. This time he's going to come back into the world again. It says, when he again brings the firstborn into the world. And so God has, has planned to bring Jesus back. Now the disciples were wondering about this. They were literalists. Right, right before Jesus ascended into heaven, they said, Hey, when is God going to establish the kingdom of Israel? Is it now? And Jesus says, It's not for you to know the times which the Father has put in his own authority. And so it's the Father who will bring the firstborn into the world. In other words, it's on God's timetable. It's according to God's plan when he, when he has determined to bring Jesus back. It's according to the Father's plan. And, and Jesus will come back. Now, notice here that 
Jesus is called the firstborn. Let's, let's talk about that for a second. Because some groups, like the Jehovah's Witness, for example, they take that and they run with it, man. And they run with it. And they'll, they'll, if you talk to them, they'll often point it out to you. Well, wait, isn't Jesus called the firstborn? And what they try to do from that is they try to make you think that Jesus is actually God's first created spirit being. And they say, well, look, there's God, right? He's like, you know, God. And then he began creating these spiritual beings. And the first one was Jesus. But they didn't call him Jesus. They said that he's actually Michael the archangel. But in the New Testament, he's called Jesus. That's what the Jehovah's Witness teach. They teach that he's nothing more than a created being. Well, the writer is not referring to the firstborn in this sense. Once again, he's talking to a Jewish audience. They, they knew the Old Testament scriptures. He's talking in an Old Testament biblical sense. The term firstborn isn't even referring to the fact that Jesus was the firstborn of Mary's family. But the firstborn is used as a term to refer to his rank, his priority, his inheritance, and his honor. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. For example, Solomon, David's son, even though he wasn't the firstborn in David's family, he is called the firstborn in Psalm 89.27. And the reason is because God chose him to be king. And so in the sense, he would receive that right. And so, you know, when children were born into the family, if they were born the firstborn, they received the right, the blessing, and the inheritance. Well, sometimes God chose to give those firstborn rights to another child who wasn't born in that order. And that's what was you know, seen in the life of, of Solomon. You know, at different times, Israel is called God's firstborn. You know, and different and things like that. But Jesus is God's firstborn in the sense that he has received the priority, the inheritance, that he's above all things. Paul talked about this in Colossians. He says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. And what that means is that he is, he is uh, exalted. He, is, he has the priority over all creation. And the reason that is is because he's the creator of all things. Right? Only Jesus has the right to be exalted above all things because he is the only one who is the creator. And man is to give their reverence to them. Just in case that doesn't make your mind up for you, the writer goes on and says, Oh yeah, by the way, Psalm 97, 7. Let all the angels of God worship him. So that, that causes a problem if Jesus is a created being. Jesus has been worshipped, and he is being worshipped. Isaiah 6 says that Jesus was the one sitting on the throne. We know that from John 12. So when you see that passage there with Isaiah, when they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and they fall on their face. and Well, that's Jesus sitting on the throne. John 12, 39 says, through 41. Revelation 5, when the church is raptured and we stand before heaven and everybody's worshiping Jesus, that causes a problem too for them. But there's going to be a day when Jesus is going to come back. God will bring his firstborn back into the world. And at that time, he'll encourage all the angels of God to worship him. So Jesus has always been worshipped. He is being worshipped. And he'll be worshipped in the future. Now, Jesus said to Lucifer, remember when he came and tempted him on the mountain? He says, hey, you know, I'll, I'll give you this if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, uh-uh. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So Jesus knew that only God should receive worship. But yet Jesus was worshipped. Lucifer was cast out of heaven, right? Because he wanted to be worshipped like God. So no created being could ever receive worship 
only God himself. And Jesus is, is, is God himself. He's the second person of the Trinity, right? There's one God and three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 7. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. And so the Father exalts the Son and encourages the angels to worship him. But in contrast, concerning the angels in Psalm 104.4, they're said to be his servants. So angels are not ruling, they're serving. They serve God. And they serve God many ways. They serve God around the throne praising. I mean, think about that job. That'd be a cool job, right? I mean, they just praise God day and night. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Angels are said to serve God as being messengers, and that's actually what the name angel means. It means messenger. God, at times, you know, he uh, sends these angels out to, to preach his message. Angels are said to um, serve in general ways. God, at times, will just direct them to, to do different ministries. For example, Jesus, they came and fed Jesus with some angel food cake, all right, when he was there on the mountain. All right, they fed him there. And so, angels minister. And as we'll see, they minister to those who receive salvation. So they could be ministering to us. We, you know, there's probably our angels around us. Whether we have one guardian angel, who knows? I mean, we could have a bunch of them. I, I need a bunch of them. I'm so clumsy. But angels, you know, they are here to help us and to serve God. And, and that's a blessing. So in contrast, once again, the writer says, hey, okay, man, we're talking about the son here. He's God. He's, he's the king. He's ruling. Angels are worshiping him. But these angels, you know, they're serving him. Verse 8, it gets even better. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And so now in contrast to these angels who are serving God... Psalm 45, 6 and 7 says that Jesus is not a servant. He's the sovereign king. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. Notice what God the Father says here about Jesus. First he calls him God. God the Father calls his son God. Therefore, O God, right? And, you know, so the, the Father calls Jesus God. Also he says that his throne is forever, which means that he's eternal, right? He's the eternal king. Also, we know that the gates of Hades can't prevail against Jesus and his church. He's going to continue to reign on his throne. Third, Jesus holds the scepter of righteousness. Now, this scepter is talking, to, you know, it's really giving us a poetic way of saying that Jesus rules in absolute truth and holiness, in absolute honesty and goodness. So, this rule didn't come to Jesus by a deity school. You know, he didn't go and learn it. But he has, but he's eternally ruled this way because he loves righteousness and hates lawlessness. It comes from the inside out. So he's he's God, a very God by nature. He rules in righteousness and truth. This King is the God Man. He came to this earth, and God the Father declared that he was the God Man by giving him the oil of gladness. Or in other words, the Bible says that he would receive the Spirit without measure, and that's why. He's called the Christ or the Messiah. It means anointed one. And the Jews were looking for this one. This one that God would pour out his spirit upon. The one that would do these certain miracles and, and show that he was from God. And Jesus fulfilled all those things. He has exalted him above all mankind. Because he's the God man. Verse 10. But And you, Lord, 
in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they'll be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. So now the writer pulls out another scripture here. Psalm 102, 25-27. And he shows here how God the Father, talking to Jesus, calls him Lord. And notice in all capitals, L-O-R-D. That name Lord there is the covenant name of Yahweh or Jehovah. It's the name of God. Remember when Moses came to the burning bush? And he says, Lord, Lord, who should I say sent me? He says, I am that I am. And he said, but you're going to know me by my name, Yahweh. Well, the Father calls Jesus Yahweh. Now this, this shouldn't surprise us because Jesus called himself that in John 8, 58. When he's talking to the religious rulers, he says, hey guys, Abraham rejoiced when he saw me. They're like, wait a second, you're not even 50 years old. How can you say that? He says, well, before Abraham was I am. He used the capital I am, showing that he was actually God. He said he was God, and the scriptures are proven over and over that he is God. So Jesus is not only called God, but he demonstrates that he's God. He has these attributes or these characteristics that only God demonstrates. For example, he's omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful. In the beginning, he laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the works of his hands. That's pretty amazing right there. I mean, think about the vastness of the universe. I mean, the earth and all of its complexity. He laid it. He fashioned it with his hands. That's encouraging when you think that you and I are his workmanship, right? Created in Christ Jesus. I mean, you know, if God can do an amazing thing to this universe, think about what he can do to our life when we just apply ourselves, you know, to him and allow him to change us. Also, Jesus is immutable, which means he doesn't change. He's unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's what he says here. You, uh, you know, they will all perish, but you remain. Jesus always remains. He will always remain the same. This is in contrast to Islam. You know, a Muslim, they, you know, they never really know if Allah's going to be in a good mood or not. You know, they actually believe that Allah can change, which he's not the God of the Bible. He's not a God of love. He, he changes. But God never changes. I am the Lord. I change not. Right? Micah 5, 2 says. Or 3, 6. One of those passages. Look it up. <laughs> you got to do your homework. That's why you got to stick to your notes. Right? But it's one of those two passages. And so, and God doesn't change. He's immutable. While the world changes around us and everything goes to chaos around us, God stays the same. Jesus is also eternal. While the world that we live in is going to fade away, it's going to grow old like a garment, thermodynamics, right? All things go from order to disorder, right? One day God will fold this earth up like an old garment. You know, it'll, it'll be thrown away. The Bible says that this earth is going to melt with fervent heat. It's all going to burn one day. When, when Jesus comes back, we're going to have the thousand-year kingdom. After that thousand-year kingdom, God is going to recreate this earth into a new heavens and a new earth. And then the new Jerusalem, the Bible says, is going to ascend out of heaven. And you and I in glorified bodies are going to live with Christ forever and ever and ever. Forever, right? As you all tell me, forever. I mean, it's going to be amazing. But you know what? Jesus is always going to be the same. We're going to look upon him. He's going to still have the nail prints in his hands and the spear in his side, the beaten face. And it's going to continually remind us throughout all eternity the fact that God became a man 
and died on the cross for us, you know, and, and that he loved us. Verse 13, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Now the writer quotes from another psalm. Man, this guy was just going through the psalms in his devotion, right? I mean, Psalm 110.1. Now in this psalm, it talks about God the Father talking to Jesus. He's called Yahweh, the Father is, but he calls Jesus Adonai, which means Lord, Sovereign Lord. He goes on and says in, that, in this verse, sit at my right hand till I'm ready to make your enemies your footstool, till it's time for you to conquer over them. And so once again, the focus of the writer is to ask, to which of the angels did he ever say this to? Well, none. He's never said this to any of the angels. He's never said, sit at my right hand to any angel. Because sitting at the right hand in ancient times meant that they were equal to the king. If you sat at the right hand of the king, you were equal to him. Right? Well, you know, and if you served before him, you weren't equal to him. Well, Jesus is equal to the king. He's equal because he's also God himself. He did not consider Robert to be equal with God. He sits at God's right hand. And he sits at God's right hand until the time determined by the Father in which God will send Jesus back to make his enemies his footstool. Jesus is going to come back and conquer. At his first coming, he came back as a humble servant riding in on a donkey, right? But he's going to come back as a ruling king on the back of a horseback. And you know who's going to be with him? His church. Because the Bible says before the tribulation begins, God's going to rapture his church. And then we're going to come back with him. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. And the Lord is going to come back and conquer the nations and establish his kingdom on this earth. The Lord will rule and reign. Verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So here's the writer's conclusion here. Jesus is God. He's the king. He's the Messiah. Angels, they're good. But they're servants, right? They're servants to the king. They're called upon to minister for God to those who will inherit salvation. So this could be a reference to us, you know, future from when this um, guy wrote this epistle. Or it could be referring to the time in which God deals with the nation of Israel. So, but it's, it's referring to God's work, um, you know, in, in ministering to those who will, who will inherit salvation. So Jesus is awesome. So let's close in some applications real fast. First, we, we have a great example of how to minister to somebody. I mean, think about just the, the command of this person with the scriptures. And this is the way the Lord wants us. You know, there's no hierarchy in the church. Right? The pastors are just the same as you. It's just we have different gifts and callings. Right? God might call me to teach, but God maybe has called you to, vent, to be an evangelist. Whatever the case may be, we all need to grow in the scriptures. And, and, and as we're going to see, this, the, the writer is going to say in chapter 6, he says, hey, by this time you all should be teachers. You all should be teachers by this time. You all should be able to take the scriptures and begin at that scripture and explain Jesus to somebody from the Bible. So it's just another encouragement that, man, we need to be in the Word. And if you look at the Old, uh, the Old Testament believers and the early church, they were all people of the Word. They were hungry for it. And we need to, like, like babies, desire the pure milk of the Word. Second, we need to be careful not to put anything before Jesus. It could be a doctrine, right? Cults get a problem with this, right? They start putting angels before Jesus. Some traditions start putting idols and priests and all kinds of other stuff before Jesus. Well, if that's the case, well, man, we need to toss that stuff out. Jesus is the king. But often in our culture, it's self before Jesus, right? 
itself before Jesus. Oftentimes it comes in a compromise, the compromise life where we want Jesus, but we keep Jesus kind of with us. And so we kind of live our life, we direct our life, we run our life, and then we kind of take Jesus out when we need him to encourage us. Well, when we do that, that's in a sense making ourselves greater than Jesus. Jesus wants total control of our life, right? We're on this one-way street. There is no looking back. There is no looking at self. It's only looking forward and allowing him to rule our life. And he's the only person who has the right to rule our life because he's God. He created us. He's ruling right now, and one day he'll come back and rule, and we're going to worship him.